Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more. More meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello. Welcome. You are listening to episode 170, and I'm Danielle Delamar. Before we get into today's interview with Dr. Toyosi Unwemina, I want to just sneak in a little piece of what she said in the interview here in just the next few seconds. Um, I'll play that and then I'll come back. So doing that now. It's, it's it's the fact that we were whole people before we came into our careers and 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 our careers don't suddenly become everything that defines us unless we let it and it's 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 me having done the work that I did stepping back to accept that I'm a whole person and that a a single-minded pursuit of an end goal that's not even really my personal end goal doesn't make sense, especially if it means it costs me in other areas that I feel like I'm supposed to contribute to. I honestly think this is the whole theme of this month, right? This month in May of 2023, I have featured guests who are practicing wellness in their academic careers, showing up over and over and over again to push back against these systems that can eat you up if you let them, right? From Dr. Genevieve Taylor in episode 166 to Dr. Aaron Furtak in episode 168 to Dr. Angela Gist Mackey in episode 169. All of these stories are about honoring the call to do something beyond your career, something bigger than your career, from consulting and coaching, to podcasting, to blogging, to writing books that you self-publish. That's something that Toyosi talks about in today's interview, right? Just sort of honoring that you are bigger than your career. You don't have to shed pieces of yourself to be worthy enough to stay. And I just love that. I just love that. Right. Because when it comes right down to it, I truly believe career wellness is about being connected to yourself, your desires, your wants, your needs, your values, and responding to those things, right? Self-compassionately responding, making sure that you're making space for yourself. And this is something Toyosi talks about. This is something we get into in this conversation. The other piece of career wellness that I always stand by is the power of community. You need to be witnessed by other people. You need to be truly seen by other people. And you need to feel supported and held by them. When you make decisions that go against what culture would want you to do, right? That go against what academia would want you to do. That go against what your institution would want you to do, right? You need to be surrounded by people who witness the tension that you're experiencing between what you want and what the culture wants of you and who then hold and support you and create space for you. And Toyosi is going to talk about the power of community in this episode as well. Oh, and the other thing I should mention is that when I was having this interview with Toyosi, I was struggling to find my words and I was apologizing um, and I was pausing a lot so that I could find the questions I wanted to ask her. So I just want to give you a heads up. I edited out my pausing and my apologies um, so at the end of the interview, when you hear me say, I've paused and apologized a lot, <laughs> you didn't miss it. I actually edited it out. And actually, on second thought, maybe I shouldn't have done that, um, just so you could have really heard uh, the conversation play out sort of in its most authentic way. But I did. And I really appreciated how Toyosi was patient with it, right? 
when I needed to pause, when I needed to take a second to find my words. She still honored me and she still honored the space that we created together, which she'll be able to hear more about in the interview. All right. So from being whole to healing from people pleasing to finding spaces of support, I'm so excited for you to hear the wise words of Dr. Toyosi Unwemina. Here she is now. Thank you for joining our conversation today. I am talking to Dr. Toyosi Unwemina, Associate Professor of Medicine and Hematology. Toyosi, how are you? I am doing well, Danielle. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Um, I am really excited to have this conversation for the reason I told you before we started the recording, which is that you sort of found your footing and, and, and your purpose in academia and you found that it was something worth fighting for. Um, I know that's like uh, a really quick sort of summary and dropping us into the middle of, of a much, much bigger conversation. Um, but I'm really excited to have the conversation because you started um, like, like this sort of wellness work started with, with a crisis. Um, and so I wonder where you, if, if it's okay to start there and if there's anything you want to say before we start talking through the crisis that sort of led you to this, this path um, where you wanted to stay in academia. Sure, sure. Um, you know, as you were talking, I was thinking that the wellness work is what led to the crisis, or perhaps the crisis was an important piece of the wellness work, because really the wellness st work started before and really ultimately may have precipitated that crisis. Mm. Ooh, say more. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I think I will go back to when I first started my academic career and you know, I, I'm a recovering people pleaser, and I think that that may be a challenge for um, many people who identify as women. And I think there might be a cultural socialization around being pleased, you know, pleasing. Anyway, that was my socialization. And so as much as I had accomplished so much in getting to my faculty job, there was definitely still that component that was also very much dependent on the people around me to give me a sense of my purpose, what I needed to do. And so even though I was very, um, I had a very strong internal sense of where I wanted to go, I was also still very deferential. And I ran into the challenge of, I think, having people around me who just, for whatever reason, didn't believe that I could do the things that I had said I, I was setting out to do. Anyway, so a lot of me in my journey to the, the point of starting wellness was making myself small so that I could fit in and so that people could like me. And so when I started doing the work of, of wellness, I started working with a coach. And one of the most important shifts for me in that work was getting in touch with my feelings. And so I was the person who I would, I would suddenly start feeling sad and I would ask, why am I sad? And I would have to walk back to maybe three conversations ago where something had triggered me to feel poorly. And in the course of the coaching, I recognized that there was just that disconnect between the event that may have upset me and my recognition of that event. And so part of that coaching work helped me bring both together where I could more clearly recognize when I was upset in an instance or I was concerned about something, which allowed me to then voice my concerns a little bit more um, more proximate to the problem. Because sometimes what would happen would be that I would get upset three hours later, but the conversation was over. And then it didn't mm -hmm. make sense to go back to it. So when I started getting in touch with who I was and my feelings, it did mean that I was a little bit more assertive, I think, than people around me were used to. And I also was, I think, advocating for myself more in a way that I hadn't done in the past. And I think people... Some of the experiences I had with coworkers in my space was that they would request something and no matter how outlandish it was, I would do my best to make it work. But I was getting to a place where I would say, hmm, I'm not available to do that right now, but perhaps you can reach out to somebody else who is. And so it was definitely, I think, a jarring experience for people who had experienced me as someone who was always eager to do whatever I was asked to do 
to now being someone who was actually pushing back and holding boundaries that I had not held in the past. And so I think part of my crisis was, was in a sense, people saying, I don't like this person that you've become because now I have to change because of, because of the change that's happened in you. And so, I mean, I, I think of it as, you know, for the longest time, especially when I started my desire to please, to be honest, I always now recognize as a form of manipulation, I needed something. I didn't necessarily have the power to get it from someone. And so in trying to please them, then there was the increased chance that I could, you know, get it out of them. And so now that I was kind of a little bit more in touch with who I was and recognizing that my only power lay in my ability to change myself and to invest in myself, then I, I wasn't doing that anymore. And I, and I think that really did, did upset people to the point that we came to a point of conflict where there were many complaints about me as someone who was not responsive, not available, you know, <laughs> things that and when, and when I got called to speak about it, I said, no, I'm not going to be responsive in the way I used to be because it's detrimental to my health. And that was a point of contention. Okay. So um, when I hear you describe this, it feels like it happened pretty quickly once you started noticing. Um, tell me where I'm wrong. Um, I will tell you that it took me a while to get to the point of recognizing my overwhelming desire for people pleasing. That really actually took a couple of months of work. And then it took me a while to accept my right and capacity to hold boundaries. And then it took me time to start to enforce those boundaries. And then as I did it, there was kind of like a snowball effect of the more I held boundaries, the healthier I was, the better I did, the more productive I was. Because in the past, I spent so much time massaging the emotions of people around me to try to get them to cooperate with me. It takes a lot of energy. When I stopped doing that, I think I liked, I liked how much more energy I had to be more of me. And so then, then it, it went quickly. But I think all the work in leading up to just even learning to accept and hold those boundaries did take time. Okay. Um... I want to take a second and just um, remember what you just said in, in the words of, I had more energy to be more of me. <sighs> um, I think we should just pause with this for a second because I think um, it's a really big piece that we often miss. Energy to be more of me. And when you're more of you, Toyosi, what are you able to do? Oh, oh, Danielle. <laughs> I want to try too. It is. I mean, it just, it's such a big thing, such a big deal. And um, gosh, so much more, so much more. Um, I think one, oh, goodness it's hard sometimes I think to quantify or to put into words because I think what it gifted me was mental space. And you don't think about that. And even then it's like, how do I define for you? What is mental space? But it's just space to gain clarity on what I want. That's, that's what it gifted me. And, and, and it gifted me the ability to then, I mean, once you're clear on what you want, then you have the gift to pursue it. But in the past, I was so kind of mixed up with what do they want? What do I need to do to make them happy so that I couldn't clearly understand what I wanted, what I needed to do? And to be honest, it's very difficult to make people happy. It's very hard. And so it, in a sense, it was a game I couldn't win. But the moment I had space and energy to think through my needs, my wants, and how I wanted to move forward, it really did free me up to just be more. And, 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 you know, being more for me, I love writing. I love writing. And a lot of the writing I love actually is outside of the work I do in academia, though my writing coach tells me that I'm going to love scientific writing as much as I do love nonfiction writing. What I did is I started writing more. <laughs> and that, that brings me joy because I write for love 
at least the writing I do that's outside of academia is really about is is really about kind of love. Mm, I'm curious if you're willing to tell me what what kind of writing you're doing. Oh, sure. So I've written three books and one book I just published recently. I self-published my books. Um, and, and if you want, we can talk about why that is. Um, but um, my first book was a, ch- a children's book and I wrote it for my daughter and it's called My Hair is Beauty. And part of that was just in growing up and some of the messages I heard around my my hair, not wanting that to be passed on to my daughter. And so I wrote a book for her. And at the same time, I wrote a nonfiction book called Seven Laws of Black Hair. I did that five years ago. And I did that at a time when I was kind of disillusioned in academic medicine and looking for a way out and saying, I want to follow my passions anyway. I don't want to be here. So five years later, I'm in this place where now I have a sense of who I am, what I want. And I recognize that as much as I love my academic work, it's not all of me. And as much as I recognize that in a sense, I have an obligation to my academic writing, I also recognize and accept the fact that I have an obligation to the words that live in me that I want to share with my family. And so the book I wrote was for my daughter, you know, the children's book. Um, she's now she's now nine. And the book I wrote recently, it's called The Miracle of Gratitude, was for my church family. And so for un- reasons that are unclear to me, he asked me to share a message over Thanksgiving that was about gratitude. And it was 30 minutes. I didn't have enough time. And at the end of that, I felt like I have so much to say, so much to say. And so I put it together and I put it all, all together in a book. And there was just so much love and joy that came out of writing that. And I think it's because I know the audience that's going to read my book. It's my family at church. And, and so it's just, it just, yeah. So I have freedom to write. And to be honest, I, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a writer. So in a sense, I've embraced that part of me and accepted that it coexists with the side of me that's academic as well and that it's okay. So my first thought is, wow, I so often hear academics say things like, oh yeah, I would love to write a children's book, but you know, that's not going to happen until I get full professor or, you know, that's not going to happen until this happens or that happens. And um, I'm wondering if you had a point where you said, you know what, it's just going to happen now. Um, And that's just how it's going to be. Or if you actually did come to a place where you're like, whoo, I'm at a good sort of nice place in my career. I have tenure. I'll go ahead and um, write the book now. Like, did you stop and wait for a good time in your career before you wrote these sort of non-academic works? Yeah, you know, that, that's a really good question. I will tell you that when I wrote the first book five years ago, I think there was just a sense of I've got to do something to, you know, speak to my daughter in a language that she can understand right now. Because, you know, as a child, she loved books. And I found that she was memorizing books even before she knew how to read. And so it really just felt like such an important opportunity for me to take in that moment to help her internalize messages that are healthy about her hair. And so in a sense, then I did it out of a sense of necessity of like, this is a moment in this child's life where I can do this. And so I did. I will tell you that when I did that, (laughs) I feel like I made the mistake of sharing it with my mentors and, you know, they were not happy with me. And that I think was part of why I stopped doing all this writing for so long, because there was always that voice in my head of, you don't have time for that. You shouldn't do this. But the book I've written recently, and to be honest, I, I have more books in, in the works, is, is now recognizing that, no, this is part of my mission. This is part of who I am. And the academic thing is great, and the tenure is great, and if I get tenure, it's okay. But if I don't get tenure, and I don't write these books that are on my heart, it's the not writing books that are on my heart that, that, that's really going to make me feel like I, I missed out. That's going to make me feel like I, I I missed something that I really was supposed to do. So I'm hearing you talk about career wellness and you tell me where I'm wrong as embracing yourself fully, um, even the parts of you that have nothing to do with your career. Um, that's a big piece of career wellness. Yes. 
Absolutely, Danielle. Absolutely. And I think writing sometimes can feel a little fuzzy because writing kind of is a currency in academia. So it, it can feel like the writing belongs to ac- academia. But if if you if I said something like singing was my passion, I think that might not be so hard to to think about how that could coexist alongside you know writing or doing something in academia. But I agree. It's 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 the fact that we were whole people before we came into our careers, and 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 our careers don't suddenly become everything that defines us unless we let it. And it's 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 me having done the work that I did, stepping back to accept that I'm a whole person and that a a single-minded pursuit of an end goal that's not even really my personal end goal doesn't make sense, especially if it means it costs me in other areas that I feel like I'm supposed to contribute to. Okay. So I want to get us to a place where you had realized ah, academia is part of something I'm supposed to do. It is something I'm supposed to be part of. It is worth fighting for. Um, So yeah, tell us how you came from crisis to that point of realization. Sure. And thank you for asking that. You know, um, so part of the crisis was really a big moment of betrayal. And... um, (laughs) And I think I can laugh about it now, um, but it really was very, very hurtful at that time. And I had the sense in that moment of just feeling so hurt and so afraid and so surprised by what I felt was evil (laughs) in the actions of people towards me that I really felt like I can't be here anymore. I can't be in a space where I'm not safe. I can't be in a space where people would treat me this way. I was so sure that there was just no other way but to leave. I was so sure. And and so that, you know, led me to look for other jobs, especially outside of academia, and reach out to people. And I interviewed for a bunch of jobs at the time. And I finally landed on actually two options. One was non-academic and the other was um, more academic. But I remember just like... I wasn't necessarily super excited about either job. Like they were both good opportunities, but there was just a sense of like, well, I mean, I have to leave. So it makes sense to take what's best of the two. But I finally had a conversation with a mentor. Actually, what happened was that at the time I was, I, I've been in, I've been um, in the city where I live for 20 years now. And at the time I was thinking, okay, I'm going to take this job. It was going to move me to another state. And I thought it was important to let my pastor of 20 years know that, hey, I'm going to be leaving before I sign the contract. Like this was like, I was like, oh, the contract is going to be mailed to me in a week. I should let him know before I sign the contract that I'm leaving. And so when I I told him, he was like, oh, no, you've got to talk to my wife before you make this decision. And I thought, no, the decision's already made. (laughs) There is no turning back. But sure, I'll talk to your wife. And at the time... His wife was a dean at um, a college of pharmacy, and um, we had breakfast. And I talked to her about all the challenges. I told her it, it didn't just start at that point. It had been going on for a while, and I couldn't live in a place with people where people would treat me like that. I couldn't work there. And she told me about her experiences. And then she told me, she said, you know, at some point, you're going to need to fight and you have to decide when the fight is going to come to you. I mean, you can you can defer it and you can do it later, but at some point you're going to have to stand and fight. And that was a very very first conversation that made me realize that there was more than just the option of staying in an evil environment, I considered it evil, versus running away. Like I had only up until that point I thought there were only two choices. But when she you know, ultimately was saying there was the possibility of staying even in an environment that I considered to be so bad. It just changed my thinking. And I was like, wait a minute, is it, is it possible? And all of a sudden I began to entertain the thought that staying was a possibility. And then I really began to weigh my feelings about the job, the job offers that I had before me. And I was like, you know what? I'm not super excited about these offers. Why is that? And I really started to think about the work I was doing. So part of one job offer that seemed to be so attractive at the time 
was that I actually would have mentoring support. I, I already knew someone over there who was welcoming me with opening open arms. She had a program she wanted me to help take over, but it would take me away from the work I was doing at the time. And, and I think I, I, as I started thinking about, you know, what it was about the job that wasn't so exciting to me, why it felt like, oh, I got to take this job. I started realizing that I had, I had come to a point in my academic career at, at my university where I was, I really actually felt like I could see the way forward in my work. And I was super excited about my work. Yes, there were all these things around me and people behaving badly and treating me poorly, but I really loved this work. And so the more I considered it, the more I recognized that I really love my academic work. I love the new knowledge I'm creating. I feel like I'm a unique person in the space. I love the connections I've made. And it was so important to me not to change direction, but to keep pursuing it because there was a sense of something's about to break, you know, something's about to work out. And so mm-hmm. that, that really was the point at which I started considering staying. And in working with my coach, we also started to think about how could I create a safe space for myself so that my work could thrive, even though the people around me were still there. Oh gosh, I really want to know about the safe space um, and how, like, what that looked like. Um, probably a combination of things. So I think one of the things I got clear about in that um, instance of betrayal were, was who my friends were and who who my friends were not. And um, I mean, I don't think I would call anybody my enemy, but I think one of the things I recognized I was doing, especially for one of one one person who was actually pretty um, important in my career up until that point was that I had been performing for so long for someone who didn't recognize my performance or who didn't recognize that I was worthy. And, you know, I I kept thinking, okay, I'm going to publish one more paper and then this person's going to think I'm great or I'm going to get that grant and then they're going to think I'm great. And really there was always just a sense of actually every so often this person would ask me, why do you try so hard? (laughs) How interesting. <laughs> and so it was, It was. I think, appreciating that that wasn't a space anymore in which I wanted to engage. This was a person I met with like literally every week or every other week. And so there was a lot of energy going into that space and trying to prove myself. And so I, I stepped away from that. I still communicate with this person, but I stopped having those consistent meetings because what I recognize is that this person at least... I, I perceived had the energy towards me of unbelief. Like they didn't think I could make it in the way I said I wanted to make it. And so they were indulging me by meeting with me, but there wasn't the sense that I would make it. And so in a sense, I think sometimes they put obstacles in my way so that they would have confirmation bias that I wasn't going to make it. And I, I mm. kept trying to jump over every obstacle and then say, Hey, I, I did this one now. Am I okay? And I never could, I, I never got the affirmation I was looking for. So anyway, so the moment I left that, I stopped seeking affirmation. In fact, I stopped meeting with this person and it just, all of a sudden there was just more time, more time to do other things. Cause I wasn't trying to, I wasn't doing things now to impress somebody. I wasn't publishing a paper because, well, you know, this person might be impressed with a journal it got into. It was now like, where do I want my work to go? Who cares about my work? And how do I, it was just more, more like a, a labor of love rather than a, I'm trying to prove something to someone who will never believe, believe that I can. So that was one piece of it. The other piece of it also though, was my workspace in which all of this had happened where the complaints against me were very much about, well, she's not responsive. She doesn't want to do what we want her to do, which, you know, honestly, I think I I just had come to a point of realization that I didn't want to be more responsive because the things to which I was being asked to be responsive to like, Oh, she didn't respond to email in two hours. I didn't want to live like that. And to be honest, I didn't feel like it was urgent. And so I actually, I actually exited the space and I chose to work in a different unit. And so I'm a clinician. So this is my clinical unit that I exited. And that was really important for me because the clinic, the unit I work in now is a unit where people I actually work with trainees and they are always, they value my expertise and they recognize my expertise. So the space in which I work right now, people thank me for showing up. <laughs> Such a different experience from going to a place where you're worried that one, you know, snicker might be like, you know, 
misinterpreted or like, you know, just like you're walking on eggshells because you're not sure that you can please anybody. So that's part of what it was, I think, was just letting go of those spaces where I perceived that I was just putting in a lot of energy to trying to make people happy who couldn't be happy and um, just stepping, stepping really more into spaces where people actually wanted me to be there and appreciated the work that I do. So that work now looks more fun. It's more joyous. I enjoy my meetings. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what it looks like. <sighs> okay. And, um, that like lands really well in my body when I hear you talk about, like, I just sort of moved towards sort of the good energy and got rid of the bad energy. <laughs> and, um, I guess my <laughs> question is, do you see still that you want to get to a place that feels even more sort of well than, than you feel now? Or do you want to be in a place um, that's different than where you are now? Or do you want to stay where you are now and sustain it? Mm. That's a really great question, Danielle. And I think the jury is still out on that. Um, what I realize is that unhealthy places are unhealthy because of the ill health of the people who are there. So it's not that an institution is bad or not. I mean, it's that people come together and co-create a culture of ill health and then endorse it. And so then it's carried forward. And so there is a challenge of, you know, the longer you remain around people who, who, um, who think it's normal to be, um, to be ill. I think if I'm going to say emotionally or mentally, you know, or the, or when you're in an atmosphere where it's this, there's a sense that you must win at all costs, even if it costs you personally, or it costs you emotionally or physically, it does, it does increase your chances that you're going to um, be part of that and not even think that there's anything wrong with that. And so there is a conscious effort to gravitate and that for me to gravitate towards the spaces where people believe anything is possible, invite you into spaces like you invited me into yours mm -hmm. um, and just believe for more to life than just a set of endpoints that are not really clear or not even really attainable fully. And so I will tell you that that's part of what's led me to start taking business school classes um, and thinking about actually going into coaching myself because coaching really helped me make transformations. And I think about my young self 10 years ago who first came into academia not recognizing that there was so much that was wrong with the culture I accepted as the default culture. Um, interestingly, I this past weekend gave a talk at a retreat for fellows, and I, and I gave a talk kind of similarly talking about how much unlearning is going to need to happen um, once they make the transition from trainees to faculty. And, you know, as for us as clinicians in our medical training, there's a lot of, you know, we suppress the urge to eat. We suppress the urge to sleep. We suppress so many urges. And so that by the time you've come over the 10 years of your training um, from medical school to residency and beyond for those who went on to fellowship, there's been a lot of learning poor, uh, bad habits that are not really compatible with self-care. With self um, and so it has led me to the place where I want to be around people who, who believe in possibility and... I do want to take my pain, um, my past pain, and share it with others so that they also can, and they can be healthy faster. Because they're already, the training I think makes people unhealthy, um, but so that they can recognize that ill health and turn around and get the help they need sooner. Okay, so that's sort of where you're headed, some sort of... Um coaching work, um, some sort of help um, to people in, in unlearning bad sort of cultural habits. Um, it, am I getting that right? And would you add to that? Yeah, that, that is correct. <laughs> so 
along those lines, I started a podcast um, called Heme Consults for Women of Color in Hematology. And heme, heme is short for hematology. And it really is focused towards my fellows that I work with. So in general, um, I'm a woman of color. And in general, we don't get many people of color come through our fellowship programs. And um, this year, we happen to have one or two women of color who I had the privilege of rotating with. And what I recognized was that they were battered, <laughs> they were bruised at the time that I started working with them. And it all, I mean, I'm only on service a week at a time, but there was a sense of spending the whole week reassuring them that they were valuable, that they are worthy, and that they had the right to be there. And I remember thinking the whole time, you know, as they shared some of their experiences with me, thinking, oh, I've got to tell you how that also happened to me. I've got to tell you how that was my experience too. And one of the challenges is the more you have these negative experiences, sometimes you turn inward and you say, well, it's me, I'm the problem. Not recognizing that, no, there's an institutional culture of, of um, kind of suppressing the things that make us most human. And so that's why I started the podcast in a way to share my story. And I start the podcast every time encouraging people I, I say, oh, woman of color in hematology, you are exactly where you need to be. You have everything you need to succeed. And this is so important because when you feel like you're not worthy, when you feel like you're not supposed to be in a space, you can't really, you can't excel. You can't do well. It's hard to thrive. And, and if people, for whatever reason, feel like, okay, well, maybe you're not supposed to be here in a, in a way it's a self-fulfilling, self-reinforcing prophecy and anyway, so I felt I feel like part of my my job, my my obligation, but not a you know hard obligation, but like my joy is to help people just come over those barriers so that they can be more of themselves. Okay, so I would love you to say how you began the podcast again because I want to feel it more deeply, and I want everyone who's listening to feel it a little bit more deeply. So will you say it again? Sure. I, I will tell you that I had been thinking about it for a while, but it really came down to one week rounding with one particular woman of color. And I just remember that whole week, just encouraging her, reminding her that she is smart. You know, she, she knows what she's doing. She's, she's a, a great leader. And just, it was just, it was so much encouraging that week. I literally felt like we left the work we were supposed to be doing and really just focused on healing her and creating a space to heal her. And I remember thinking, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to be here next week to continue this work of healing, but you still need it. <laughs> and so I, I started the podcast and, and actually I encouraged them to listen to it. And sometimes when things like come into my, um, my, my stream of consciousness of things that are happening in their lives, like I will record episodes specially for them. <laughs> I mean, anonymously, of course, but just... I think that we are, as people who are, we, gosh, we spend so much time learning and, and training, but it's sometimes there's always a sense that when you get to the end of one training phase, it's like, oh, well, congratulations. And here's the next training phase, start from the bottom. So there's always this constant sense of not being enough, not being capable. But the fact is that to have come through and graduated a PhD program or graduated an MD program, you're a highly functioning person. And so you don't even really need someone to tell you what you're supposed to do. You literally just need to know you can, and then you go and do it. And so that's where that podcast started from. It's just, I want people to know that they're here, that they are, they're supposed to be here, that they have the right to be here, and that they can be encouraged to move forward. That's my hope. All right. So... I think I remember you saying you had another podcast you were beginning. Has that um, happened yet? Where are you with that? <laughs> yes, I am delayed on that goal. So I wanted to um, actually to take a step back. When I started my faculty career, I'm a physician. And so much of physician training really has nothing to do with research, but somehow you're kind of, because because we as physicians take care of patients, there's a sense that we know what it means to do research, but we don't have any research training. And But when I started my faculty career, I wanted to be a researcher. I had seen mentors who had succeeded in research careers, and I was told that I wasn't qualified. 
that I didn't have the funding. I didn't have um, much publications and I wasn't qualified for the kind of protected job that allowed me to grow in a research career. And so to some extent, I didn't believe it because I was like, okay, just give me a chance. I'll show you that I can. So I've been like trying to prove myself from the very beginning. Um, and so what I, I was, I, what I was given as my first job was really a mostly clinical position. And they were like, well, here's 20% of your time. And actually I was seeing patients every day of the week. So I think the 20% of my time was like a phantom. I hope your weekends and nights can work for you to make this work. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't given the space to support my dream. And I didn't even recognize it then. I was so naive. I was like, oh, great. They're going to let me. Because they, they told me, they said, if you can get funding, then you don't have to do as much clinical time. But right now you don't have funding. Here's a clinical time. And if you can succeed, congrats, good luck, right? And what I didn't realize then was that it just doesn't happen. You don't not have research training and then start a full-time clinical job. And then somehow you're going to make it work on nights and weekends. So there's a major transformation that needs to happen first from even the shift from I'm a clinician to I'm a clinician researcher. There's just a huge shift that happens there. And I, at the time also was seeking mentors and to be honest, and now I recognize why there weren't people who wanted to mentor me. And now I think of it, it the analogy is really, um, it's like getting a, a big crying baby. And it's like, here, do you want a new baby? And if you've ever had a new baby, you know. <laughs> the first time you may have been naive, but the second time you know what you're getting. And so I, I recognize now that, you know, it's a big deal to ask someone who's equally busy to take on someone who's never had any research training and give her all the resources she needs, manuscript, writing capacity, grant writing, you know, all of that all in one package. So anyway, I, I so I struggled, but I made the transformation, I now have um, successfully kind of, you know, I see myself now as a clinician researcher, as a clinician scientist. I um, have my own group of folks that I work with and, and, and I feel confident in that role. But I recognize that many people have the same thing where they're stuck. They're like, oh yeah, we're supporting you. And secretly, we're going to give you a job that doesn't support you to succeed in that way. And so I did, I did want to start a podcast that allowed me to just give people as many resources as possible and to help them recognize that, well, mentors are great, but you can get a lot of what you need from other people. And then you can allow your mentor to just focus on the thing they're really good at. So I haven't started. I had thought I would start by May 1st. I recorded a bunch of episodes and I've done some interviews as well. But then when I went to start um, to have my, my husband, who's helping me edit uh, audio, he listened to them and he was like, some of this audio is so bad. <laughs> so I'm at the point now where I've pushed back my start day and I'm giving myself grace because I think I'm recognizing that there is a lot going on. And yes, I may have to re-record some audio, but it will be okay. And I will start when it's time. And when the message comes out, it will reach the right people. I love the the trust. When the message comes out, it will reach the right people. Um, and the other thing I'm hearing in everything you've said is you have people around you that you're both trying to support and that you're willing to be supported by, like you're willing to get the help. Cause I'm thinking about like your pastor's wife and I'm thinking about, um, the book you wrote for your church community and the book you wrote for your daughter. And I'm thinking about, the coaching work that um, you you did and you sought out a coach and you sought out mentors. And I just can't help but really feel all the relationships um, all around you all the time. And it feels like that is a really, really, really big piece of why you've been able to do what you've been able to do and feel confident and clear in it. Um, how, how does that land when I say that? You know, that is so insightful. And I have to say that I don't know that anyone's ever named it for me like you just did. Because, you know, in academia, there's a sense of loneliness sometimes. Like, I'm here by myself, but you're right. I am so surrounded by such a large supportive network and they may not be in academia, <laughs> but they're around me. And, you know, I've come this far because that network exists. And yes, you're right. 
and and I think part of my I think part of the things I do in a sense is to give back in that same way because people reached outside of themselves to help me. And I, I do feel like that's, that's also my, I don't know. I keep saying the word that comes to mind is obligation, but it's not really obligation. It's like my privilege, actually my privilege to help people come with me. I think for me, it's that I've entered into a space where people said I wasn't allowed to be. And so my job is to fling the door wide open and see how many people can come with me. And a lot of the things I do in writing books or in trying to set up the podcast is that I can only help few people one-to-one, but if there are resources that I need available, people, more and more people could be helped. So I think that's the sense I have where it's like, wow, I've been so helped. I've got to help another generation and I'm only one person. How many people can I reach in, in the best possible way? Mm. How many people can I reach in the best possible way? How can I fling the doors open? Um, Does that feel like purpose to you or is that too big of a word for you? Hmm. You know, to some extent it does actually. I mean, I feel like if I think on the story of my life, it's so improbable. I mean, I was born in in, in a, a town, it's not even a city, a town called Elisha in Nigeria. And so how I happened to be, you know, ac- halfway across the world in the United States, an academic physician at a major research institution, you know, it's kind of an improbable story. Mm, <laughs> mm. So there's a sense that my, the course of my life has kind of been not within my control and feels bigger than me. So yes, that does feel like a sense of purpose. Like I'm here because in a sense, something has been entrusted to me. Like if I made it into a space as a a clinician researcher where people said, you know, I wasn't qualified to be and people kind of closed the door against me. If I made it, and to be honest, every, the person who hired me every so often is like, I I can't believe you did it. No, can't believe I did it because there was never any intent that I would. So in a sense, the fact that I kind of made this improbable jump to me feels like it does feel like an awesome sense of, I think I heard someone once in a book call it hurrah, like just a sense of awe. I'm like, wow, I'm here. Oh my goodness. What am I going to do with this? I'm really sitting with those words of something has been entrusted to me um, and how, and how that's moved you in your life. Um, Is there anything you want to say in the end, as we wrap up here that helps you to feel like we've completed the conversation? I'll ask for like how people can get a hold of you in a second. But just in terms of the conversation we've just had, is there anything you want to make sure that you say? Um, well, first of all, I want to say thank you for inviting me into this space. And at the beginning, before we started recording, you invite, you gave me a warm invitation. And that just was so special to me. But you've continued that. Like this whole time, I felt like, wow, this is just a great space to just be myself. So thank you for creating that. And I think I want to speak to your audience and say that, you know, what was so important for me in my transitions and in making all those shifts was really the work coaches helped me do. And so I I know, Danielle, that you're a coach, and I imagine that you've really created space for so many people to make transformations. And I want to say to your audience that if you have a chance to work with someone like Danielle, who has something that's clearly special, she creates safe spaces for people to expand and thrive in. Like, I mean, we've not talked very much, Danielle, and I, I feel like I belong here and I feel like I can grow here. And so anyway, so I, I think I'm saying that if there is a chance, and I don't even know, Danielle, if you're even taking new clients, but if there is a chance to work with you, I would say you are a good coach to, to have as part of a team. Um, and, you know, not at the end of the day, I think coaching is just a great opportunity for people to grow in ways that I think just going through life as usual doesn't allow us to do. And so I think I want to say that it's important in that, Danielle, you are the kind of person that if I didn't already have an established coach, I would want you to be my coach. Wow. Wow. I did not expect that. Um, Thank you so much. 
and yeah, I, I would say that that's what I do in my sabbatical coaching program, right? It's like every single week we start out with the purpose of this program is to pause, turn inward, and listen to what your inner wisdom is saying so that it can pave the path forward. Um, and to also use the wisdom of the people in the group. It's these kinds of conversations that, that give us the pause we need so that we can put into the world that thing that has been entrusted to us, um, as you say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we don't have too many of those opportunities in the culture in which we live to pause and reflect. And so whenever anyone creates that kind of space, it really is a beautiful gift. I have been in a, an interesting place today. Like I've been, I've been apologizing for sort of losing my words and not um, being as, um, as easy. It, it's not been as easy for me to speak today <laughs> as it normally is. And I, I just have this sort of uh, maybe tiredness or, or something that's going on with me. And I want to say, I really appreciate how, um, sort of okay you've been with that and how um, how you've just created space for me to re-ask my questions or um, take the long pause to, to get my words together. Um, so I would say that as well. Thank you for that. Um, we all need that um, space to gather ourselves when we don't feel totally mm. gathered in any given day. Um, so I'll, I'll thank you for that as well. We are co-creating a space. So you come with your openness to listen mm. and it creates my openness to listen. And so between the two of us, we've co-created a, a beautiful space. Love it. Love it. And Toyosi, how can people get a hold of you? And you're not coaching quite yet, right? Or you do you accept any clients at this point? Where are you? Definitely gearing up my coaching program, um, but I am accepting one-on-one -on -one clients at this point. Um, so if anyone's an academic clinician who is looking to build their research program, whether or not they have a mentor, um, we should talk. And I am on Facebook at Toyosi and Wimena. I am also on Instagram and Instagram and at Coag Coach because I'm a hematologist. I'm a Coag Coach. I'm also on, um, where else am I? I'm on LinkedIn as well, Toyosi on Womena. Thank you so much, Toyosi. It was such a pleasure. Yay. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. That was really nice. Thanks for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. Email me at danielle at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. And for those of you who are committed to finding career wellness, I invite you to join the sabbatical program. We're a group of academics who normalize rest, play, and feeling whole. We make career decisions from that place. Find out more at selfcompassionateprofessor.com.